Morning. How's everybody today? We're doing okay. You loving this fall weather? I'm down for that. It's really good. I really enjoy this time of year. I, I don't know. It's like I just Linda Powell and I were walking in, and she said it's like it's refreshing. I think that's the right word for it. This coming Tuesday, make sure that you will come and spend time with us and rejoice and celebrate together in the goodness of God. I almost spit my mint out. Did y'all catch that? Sorry about that. Um, We're going to get together and rejoice in the fellowship and have an opportunity to make contact with our community that comes once a year as a lot of the community draws to us. And we have the opportunity to live before them the goodness of the gospel and to specifically speak the gospel to them. And I'm hoping that you'll come Tuesday with a mind and a heart ready to communicate the good news of Christ with folks who come onto our campus, whether they're children or youth or adults, and that you'll take time. I know we kind of get caught up in our own kids or grandkids or stuff that's going on with our friends, and we kind of miss the opportunity that God's laying in our lap. And so please come ready to share the good news of Jesus with others. We're also kicking back off the Steps ministry. Kind of rebooted that this past week. Been going great. And if you are struggling with any kind of weakness or addiction, I really highly recommend joining us at the Baptist Mission Center where 107 comes together with the road that uh, the Pineville Post Office is on. And uh, it's where that old church was. It's been converted over to our associational office. Join us there. I believe you'll be encouraged, helped, and strengthened. If you know someone that's struggling or whether it's yourself, please come and be with us. It's a sweet biblical fellowship where we walk through together the good news of Christ and how that delivers men and women, boys and girls, from addictions, and weakness. I want to also thank you for the incredible way you have celebrated the Minister's Appreciation Month. You have been feeding all of the staff. We had this little thing go, and you have to know what we're really like. Sometimes, you're, I don't know if you really know that, but we're all texting each other what y'all are all bringing us. Okay, so we're, we're like sort of bragging Richard lays out this great text that says, don't have time to text, man, I'm working through this great food. So we're all kind of sending the whole deal of what was brought to us in our homes and bragging on it. And really, the truth is, we're bragging on y'all. Y'all have ministered to us in this month in a very special way. Many of you just at the individual level, just recognizing and encouraging us personally, cards and emails, gifts, things that you've done for us, and then Sunday school classes gathered together to minister to us and feed us, and it's just been great. So I just, I have to say thank you. Join us today for a little bit of outreach in our own community as we prayer walk, put door hangers out, invite folks, look forward to what God is doing in our midst, and make preparations for some further outreach that we're actually working on now and be introducing to you in the next couple of weeks. So we're really delighted about that. We've been talking about deacons, and What we're looking at today is essentially what a deacon's resume ought to look like. 
Now, you know what a resume is. It's kind of like when you're applying for a job or trying to get in school or hoping to get a grant or some kind of recognition. You kind of lay out these things about yourself that you think are the essentials that might be expected of you or applauded in you. Well, Paul says, here's what the resume ought to look like when a guy turns in his application to become a deacon. This is what it should look like. Now, in the next few weeks, you're going to get something in writing. You're going to get the entire way that we do the deacon ministry and election process. We'll be giving that to you in writing next Sunday, along with a list of men who meet the very fundamental requirements of age, salvation or testimony of salvation, time of membership, and attendance or engagement at the church. And so you'll be getting a list of that next week. And then from there, you're going to be praying for a period of time over those names, looking at what we said last week about what deacons are and what their ministry is, and then looking at what we say this week about what deacons are, what their ministry is, and then one more week where I'll be sharing that with you as well. And then you're going to be nominating folks for this ministry. It's a serious, serious matter in the life of the church. And my life has been blessed with great deacons in many of the places I've served, but particularly here And the ministry of the deacons among us with true servant's heart, beautiful conflict resolution, wonderful skills to help lead others. It's been a blessing to me and to us. And I'm very thankful as Landon was praying today, was praying a prayer that I prayed this morning in reflection. And that is we're thankful for our deacons. And so uh, here's the resume. We're just going to walk through it. Unpack it and then send you home with it to contemplate the kind of man and family that you're going to be nominating and placing as potential serious ministers in our church as deacons. So let's jump in. We broke it into five parts. I think that this text, verses 8 through 13, sort of easily break into five parts, each one of them with a particular emphasis. The first emphasis, number one, a deacon is a man with healthy habits. Healthy habits. Now, habits describe the way he is. We become what we are through our habits, and we're known by our habits. And so, I want to share with you four habitual things in the life of a man that should be considered as a deacon, and he should be reminded today, if he's already serving as a deacon, what his life ought to look like. So a deacon is a man with healthy habits. Letter A, he is habitually sincere. Listen to the first part of the description in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity. The good old King James says, grave. But when we say grave today, we're thinking mostly of the cemetery. 
We're not looking for guys like that, okay? Just kind of dead. That's not, that's not it. But there's a sincerity, a seriousness, a respectability. And so, these habits describe the way he is, and he is habitually sincere. Now, this word is used four times in the New Testament. It's used in Philippians 4.8 when it talks about the kind of things you ought to think about. It says, coming out of that wonderful passage in Philippians that tells about be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then you hear that wonderful promise and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then it starts off telling you what to think about. And it says, whatever things are honorable... That's the word. It means a person that you would consider honorable. It has built into it the idea of all. Something that sort of strikes you about the person that fills your heart with the knowledge of honorableness and sincerity and all. It's used to describe older men in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. But that's how older men ought to be carrying themselves in the church. It's used also of the wives of deacons in chapter 3, verse 11. Now this is important. Men, listen very carefully in church. Let me say this to you. The last thing that you want said about you when you walk away from a conversation is somebody going... Oh man, don't take him seriously. You know how he is. Oh, you need to take what he said with a grain of salt. Oh, listen. Um, I don't want you to take what he says to heart because, you know, he's just that way. That's not the kind of person you want to be a deacon. You don't want the kind of person who can't be taken seriously when he speaks, when he acts, when he does. Because he's going to be dealing with difficult, delicate situations. Like we saw last week in the book of Acts, where you've got this faction arising, racial, ethnic tension is building up within the church, cultural collision is going on, and they needed men who could step into that and be taken seriously when they speak. Guys who, when they speak, folks sort of do the E.F. Hutton thing. Y'all remember that one? How many of you are old enough to remember the E.F. Hutton commercials? Yeah, that was a really big deal. And, and I love those commercials. That's kind of the guy you're looking for. When it says a guy that is a man of dignity, it means a man of dignity, honorable, awe-inspiring. It's a person that you don't want to dismiss what they say because the words they say have meaning and weight. This is the guy that will do what he says, but he also will not overly commit. This is very important. Part of being a good minister, and the thing I think that all good ministers struggle with, is we do want to help everybody. It's just sometimes we'll overcommit. That's a bad thing. Because when you overcommit, you end up not keeping your word. This man must be able to also not say just yes to deacon ministry, but no to too much. No to too much that takes precedent over his family. This guy's a man of dignity. He knows how to say no as well as yes. Very important. Letter B, he's habitually 
sober. <laughs> you know, there was a time we didn't even have to say that in church. <laughs> Just it was a given. But notice what it says there. It says, not addicted to much wine. I'm afraid addicted is the wrong word there. Because a lot of people will then say, look, I don't have, like, I'm not addicted, but man, I sure do love to drink. And there's sort of a new wave of that coming into the Baptist culture. I'm really worried about it. So we just make this clear. Listen very carefully. If you sign up to be a deacon, you sign up to abstain from alcohol totally. We didn't want there to be any kind of fogginess in there. We're not trying to be legalistic. I'm not trying to put you in a headlock. But our staff abstains completely from alcohol. We do. We take that very seriously. I have a weakness for alcohol. I was an alcoholic. Many of you have heard my testimony. I was a binge alcoholic in college. It's part of what put me into being dismissed from college. A lot of things were going on. I thank God that the Lord delivered me out of that. I don't need to be working side by side with you with a little liquor on your breath and me wrestling with my own stuff. I need you to just be clear and clean-headed because you may get a 3 a.m. call and you don't need to be working off four or five glasses of wine. Totally, that's what we ask. Totally, absolutely abstain from alcohol. I want that to be super clear. That's what we're asking of you. And and I, God bless you if you say, I can't do that. I first want to say, man, if you're going to hold on to just drinking so you can't serve the church, you got a problem anyway. That's an issue. Because Christ teaches us that we can give up anything that is not absolutely necessary in order to carry out his mission. So, this is it. He's habitually sober. The real uh, meaning of the word is quite interesting. It means occupy yourself with. The word addicted, it actually means occupy yourself with. It means that you're interested. You know what I'm saying? It means you're interested. Uh, I think we just have to have a disinterest in that and be free from it in order to serve well. So, he's habitually sober. Let her see. He is habitually straightforward. I'm not talking about one of those people who is always negative and sort of a negative Nelly kind of guy and, and where they're always so, well, I'm just speaking my mind. That's, that's not what this means. Habitually straightforward means you're going to say the same thing no matter what group of peers you are around. You're not going to be up in one little group saying yada, 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 and then get in another group and say, mata, mata, mata. Okay? You're going to say the same thing. Listen, there is within every human being the tendency to want to please people. It's just how it is. You cannot be a people-pleasing deacon. The Bible says that God has entrusted to you something very particular in the ministry of a deacon, and therefore your words don't have to please people, they please the Lord you serve. You see, imagine back in the book of Acts, if the deacons would have went to the Hellenized people and said, man, listen, y'all just need to understand, those, the Jews are just, they're just legalistic, and they're just culturally superior, and they just need to get on over themselves, and y'all just need to understand that they're just kind of punky, 
Okay, then he goes over to the Hellenistic folks, I mean to the Jewish folks and say, man, those Hellenized people, is that not just a messed up culture? I'm telling you, I wish that people like that wouldn't even try to get into the church. And all of a sudden they're speaking out of two sides of their mouth to try to make these two groups pleased with them rather than reconciled with each other. Sometimes, deacons, you just have to say really hard things to really hard hearts. And you will ride rough over that. It will be hard. But you cannot be. The word here means two-tongued. The North American natives used forked tongue. You remember that from the old uh, westerns that you watched. And it's the idea of being deceptive. No man needs to be a deacon who cannot speak the same thing the same way with everyone. And guys, if you get on the list and you know that that's true about you, take yourself off the list. You'll bless us and you'll bless yourself. Because some point, the Hellenized people are going to talk to the Hebrews and they're going to tell the two different stories you told and you're going to look very sinful and foolish. So, it's not double-tongued. Notice he says there, not addicted to wine, Not double-tongued, not fond of sordid gain. Look in uh, letter D. He's habitually selfless. He's not in it for the cash recognition. I'm talking about life. I'm not talking about deaconing because we don't pay anything. I remember sitting with an African-American pastor and he said, we pay our deacons so we can fire them. (laughs) That's interesting. Never heard of that. He's habitually selfless. Look at this slide from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. These earthly treasures are so powerful that they grip the entire personality. They grip a man's heart, his mind, his will. They tend to affect his spirit, his soul, and his whole being. Whatever realm of life we may be looking at or thinking about, we shall find these things are there. Everyone is affected by them. They are a terrible danger. He's speaking simply about our tendency to love stuff over God and people. And that's why Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Don't be like the Gentiles who are always seeking what shall we wear and what shall we eat and with what shall we be clothed and where are we going to live and all that stuff. No, this is seeking first the kingdom of God. So he's habitually selfless. He is not uh, fond of sordid gain. So this is his healthy Habits. Let's move into number two. A deacon is a man, not just with healthy habits, but with a healthy heart. Look in verses 9 and 10. But holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Where's faith live? It lives in the heart. It says, with the heart man believes. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in thine heart that God has raised Him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved, for with the heart man believes. It's a heart issue. 
Jesus spoke about the heart. He said that the heart was such a serious issue that it was the place that sin arises from. It doesn't come from outside you getting in. It comes from inside you getting out. And so a healthy heart is the heart of faith. So letter A, his actions originate from a heart clinging to the mystery of the faith. I think Paul uses the word mystery here to call on two things. One, the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27 says. But I think it also means that you're still enamored with the gospel. It's a glorious mystery that you're always digging into. You're always in awe of. You're always absorbed by it and you're in it. The word clinging here is very important. It means to lay hold of something so that you embrace it. It was actually used for for pregnancy. It was like there's this thing inside me that, that I'm laying hold of. So it describes pregnancy. It means something that's internal to you that you have enveloped yourself around. It becomes your cause, your thing. It's like those of you who are Lord of the Rings folks, It's it's like... The word, my precious. Does that immediately bring to mind a person and a thing? Doesn't it? Just automatically. If you're Lord of the Rings and you hear my precious, you've got Gollum and you've got the ring and immediately your mind goes that way. He was obsessed with the ring. You need to be obsessed with Jesus. You need to be absolutely the things of faith need to be that which are driving you in your life. You're not bored with the gospel. You're anchored in the gospel. It's not a side work to you, it's the work to you. And so, the Bible says that this is so important because that which is not from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. That which is not from faith is sin. This man needs to be having a life where his actions originate from a heart clinging to the mystery of the faith. Then he says something else about him. He says... Holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Boy, is this important. So letter B, he operates his life from a clear conscience. This is sort of like the OS, the operating system. This is the way that he functions. Why is a clear conscience so important? Well, here's what happens to a man who serves without a clear conscience. A man who's serving without a clear conscience is always going to be doing two things. All right? He's either going to be hiding what his conscience is not clear about, or he's going to be trying to work off the guilt he feels because his conscience isn't clear. This is a powerful force. It's so powerful that it draws people into ministries. One, as a way of hiding what they really are. They get into ministry because they think, if I add this layer to my life, it'll help hide what I really am down in my soul. So I'm going to work really hard to hide. Now, two things are going to come from a guy working in ministry who's working in ministry with a guilty conscience, an unclean conscience, and he's trying to hide. He's always going to do one of two things. He's either going to be super severe with people, Because it diverts the attention from him. 
So if he's dealing with issues of conscience, he'll deal with people super severely. He'll be harsh toward them because it keeps the focus on somebody else and keeps the focus off of his own self. Or he'll always be lax with people in their sin because he's worried that his sin is going to come out and he wants people to be lax with him. So he's going to just sort of wink at sin and not take it seriously and not confront it because, well... If I get caught for what I'm doing, I'd like people to wink at mine. And so this is a serious issue. If he's working from always hiding, he's either too severe or too lax with others. But if he's working from trying to soothe or make up for his troubled conscience by doing works, he's always going to be ambivalent about how much is enough. One minute he feels like he's done enough, he knocks off and doesn't serve very well. He starts feeling guilty again. You ever been in this cycle? And he gets back to being real busy again in church. And then he feels like he's done enough to kind of soothe his conscience, he falls off again. And then he gets busy again. And it's this terrible cycle of an unclean conscience. Your conscience needs to be cleaned by Jesus. He's the only one who can. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a beautiful promise in 1 John 1.9. That's a glorious gift. We must operate from a clean conscience. The third thing is that He is open, letter C, He is open to and welcoming of testing to the end that he is found to be above or beyond reproach. Read what it says there in verse 10. And let these also first be tested. Listen, if you're not willing to be probed a bit, take your name off the list when you see it. Because we're going to probe. Now, I'm not looking for deep, dark secrets. That's not what I'm talking about. But I think that if we're going to have men in leadership in our church, they have to be tested. He says it here. This is not just my fault. And they have to be open to it. In other words, they welcome somebody coming in to help them increase their holiness. We're not going to find any sinless men. That's not what's happening here. What we're looking for is repentant men. Genuine men of integrity who welcome into their life people who will probe them and tell them the truth, and help them grow in holiness. They shouldn't serve without this. That's why it's not simply by vote that we decide all this. It's also by test. We interview, we speak with these men. I have had the unpleasant, very difficult challenge of sitting down with a few men in the course of my ministry, everywhere I've served, well, everywhere I've been senior pastor serving, and to have hard conversations and then on a few occasions say to men, you're not ready. You're not ready. Don't do this now. Sometimes they are very joyful because they were already sensing a struggle and they needed some affirmation that it just wasn't time. Others have been really angry. You're judging me. And so that's been hard. Those are very difficult things to do. But they're serious things that the church has been handed. Let them be tested and then let them 
serve. That's why we don't do the old school thing where uh, you have the ordination council and ordination service on the same day. That's foolish. You know why? Because you're guaranteeing that they're going to make it through the council. You already got mom and dad coming. You got grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles. Everybody's coming to see you be ordained that night. They're all going to be here with suit and tie and everything ready. And we're going to bring you in an hour before and give you a thumbs up and guarantee it. No. No. You don't want that. You may have to be told no, and it may be the best thing that ever happens to you other than meeting Jesus. Because it may make you deal with some issues that you need to unpack in your life and the luggage and baggage and go through and sort and get better. So let's move on to number three. Here we go. Number three, a deacon is a man with a healthy home. I think that that ought to be a given again, but first it describes his wife. His wife is dignified. Same word. Okay, honorable, respected, worthy of that. And then it says, not malicious gossips. <laughs> I want to tell y'all something. The craziest thing about the word here is it's the word devil. In other places in the scripture, it's actually translated devil. It's the word from which we get diabolical. You ever heard that? That was actually back when you used to watch Batman and the b- diabolical scheme of the Joker. You know, you remember that? Alright, that's the word here, is diabolical. And it's the word we get diablo from, which is the devil. In other words, this person must always be operating for the good of the church. The enemy is always operating for the bad of the church. This is important, because it has to do, what was the devil called? The accuser of the brethren. A person who's going to serve in ministry at all cannot spend their time as an accuser of the brethren, as a gossiper, as a breaker down of others, but a builder up of a person. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, let no unwholesome word come from your mouth, but only that which is fitting for edification that it may give grace to the hearer. That's how our mouths are to be used. So the wife, letter A, is an example of spiritual health. So you're considering a man and you're considering his wife too. That's why it's in there. It's important. Because everybody that is married is one flesh. And it's a team. Letter B. His fidelity is a model of sacrificial love. What does it say there? Verse 12, let deacons be husbands of only one wife. This is a challenging text. It's been battled around for years because essentially what everybody made this was divorce. Paul knew how to write the word divorce. He wrote it in other places. He didn't write it here. He's writing about something that's different than simply a life event called divorce. Divorce is a heart-breaking, house-rending, sorrowful event in the lives of those who go through it. If Paul wanted to simply exclude all divorcees, he could have done that. Other folks think that it's dealing with polygamy, like not having two wives at once. Well, Paul knew how to write that too, and he didn't write that either. Polygamy was a curse and a scourge that came into that culture, 
um, sort of in an underhanded way during the Roman Empire. But it wasn't the issue he was dealing with. No, it's something that cuts way deeper. In the Greek, the way that this phrase is rendered is unique. It's rendered literally a one woman man. There are guys who are not divorced that are not one woman men. It's cutting deeper than divorce. There are guys that are not bigamists and married to two or more people that are not one woman men. Paul has done here is he's cut through the legal talk down to the heart. And he said that this guy is the guy that's described in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That He might sanctify her by the washing of the water of the Word. What does that mean? It means that the kind of man that ought to be serving the church as a deacon is a man who is sacrificially loving his wife, laying aside the temptations of pornography, of adultery, of imagination, of flirting, of scanning. He's the guy whose heart belongs to one human, his wife. This cuts far deeper than bigamy and divorce because it cuts into men who are not divorced and are not married to more than one person. It cuts into every man. And it says, Man, in your heart, are you fully, completely devoted to this woman? To die for her as Christ died for you? And to live for her as Christ lives for you, that she might be sanctified by your influence. The Apostle Paul was going beyond your record. He was going down to your heart. Men, if you cannot before the Lord Jesus say, I am a one woman man, take your name off the list. Ladies, gentlemen, if you know a man is a good servant and a hard worker, but you know this is an issue for him, his good service and hard work will not make up for the fact That he is not a one-woman man. This is serious. Letter C. His children and household show the influence of gospel leadership. Let this never be said by a child of yours if you serve in the church. It shouldn't be said of anyone who is a believer. But specifically, let this not be said if you're a deacon or a pastor or minister. Let this not be said, I wish my dad was the man everyone at church thinks he is. 
Your household has to be run with the same personality that your external life is run. You cannot be at church something different than you are at home. You cannot be with one group something different you are than you are with another group. There has to be this consistency of children and household under the influence of gospel leadership. That means if there is no leadership at home in gospel ministry, your leadership at church is a false ministry. This is a danger for everyone. This is the way the enemy angles it. He wants to give two different views to our children so that they're frustrated with our kind of Christianity and they ditch it because we're not consistent with who we are in the home and who we are in public. These are serious issues of a healthy home. Number four, and we're going to kind of press it toward a close here. A deacon is a man with a healthy honor. This is really essential to... This is not a campaign. You're not running for office. You're not recruiting people to vote for you. You're not going around trying to drum up support. That's not what this is about. It's not about you. A healthy honor is a very unique thing. A healthy honor does this. Rather than you wanting people to say, Oh, what a great guy that is. You want people instead to say, what a great God He serves. There is a fundamental difference between those two. An unhealthy honor draws exaltation to itself, Himself. Healthy honor moves all exaltation to Jesus, pushes all things toward what it was that He was called to do. Glorify Jesus. This means that the whole role of taking on deaconship is to serve God's people in such a way that they glorify God, not you. That they magnify Jesus, not you. That they're moved by the Spirit, not you. That it is a ministry of servanthood that brings about healthy homes and churches. But notice how he ties it all together at the end. Look in verse 13 again. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing. That's an honor. And great confidence. This is an honor. In the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is who we honor. You see, the whole goal of a deacon ministry is to help the saints be healthy in their walk with Jesus and to help the lost come to know Jesus. When we see the first deacons unfolded, we see two of them immediately doing evangelism. We see Philip with the Ethiopian unit. We see Stephen with the glorious sermon that he preached that was so awesome that he was stoned for. We see deacons who are concerned about the souls of men. And so the honor is not something they're taking upon themselves for them. It's something they're shining the light on Jesus. So that the one who's honored as a result of the service is Jesus. The one who's embraced as a result of the service is Jesus. The one who is worshipped is Jesus. So where does this put us? Well, it puts us in an important position. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be picking men. 
And that's serious. Here's the resume. Last week you saw illustrations. Next week you'll get one more teaching about it. And we're going to be picking men. The ultimate goal is for our church to proclaim Jesus Christ. And that's what we do. We want every man, woman, boy, and girl on this planet to know that God made them. That He made them in His image and that because of that, they carry a mark of incredible dignity, worth, and value. And in that dignity, worth, and value, they scuttled the thing of most value, their relationship with God, in order to pursue sin and they separated themselves from God so that every human being is born in and grows up in a state of separation from God called sin and evidenced by sins. And in that separation, there is a longing deep in the human heart for meaning, acceptance, love, forgiveness, health, hope. And that the world is chasing after those things in a zillion ways, but only Jesus can give it. So He came to earth to rescue us. He took on our skin, our flesh and blood. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived sinlessly and perfectly, always doing what we ought have done but didn't do. And then He died on the cross for our sins as a substitute, taking upon Him what we deserve but couldn't bear. And then as God's hallmark of acceptance of the sacrifice, He raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus appeared to over 500 people and then ascended to heaven where He sits at the right hand of God right now talking to God about God's children. And some of you are here today and you're not God's children. You're still separated by your sin. And that separation is serious and time is limited for you to respond. And there is a knowledge within your heart that you need to deal with it, but you put it off. You excuse it. You delay it. But you need Jesus. You need forgiveness. You need hope. Having heard this message today as I shared with you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to bow with me now and to call upon God and ask Him to save you. Deacons in your heart praying for those who are struggling here today. Church, praying for those who may be struggling and praying for deacons that we will be selecting over the next several weeks. And some of you who do not know the Lord, I want you to call upon Him with me right now to ask Him to save you. You know you're ready. You know you need to. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, You made me in Your image. And I fouled it by my sin. And I'm separated And I know I am worthy of punishment, death, and hell. Truly, repent of this. I turn away from having done things my own way. So I'm calling upon you now. Believing that Jesus is you in human skin. God in the flesh. Believing that Jesus lived for me perfectly. Died for me as my substitute. 
and on the third day was raised from the dead. I believe that, God. So I'm calling upon you now. Save me. Forgive me. Take me as your child. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you called upon the Lord to save you, I'm going to invite you to come and share that. Jesus never called anyone privately that He did not expect them publicly to declare who He was. So would you stand as God works in your heart? Would you come? Maybe you want to spend a little time today at the altar praying for those who are becoming deacons over the next few weeks and months. Maybe you have some other needs you want to pray with the staff. Come and share with us.